This is Agent to Agent Remarks. My name is Jeff Lavelle. I am a real estate broker and property manager with The Brokerage, a real estate firm just outside of Las Vegas in Henderson, Nevada. Agent to Agent Remarks are those comments in the multiple listing system that aren't shared with the general public. They're just those private comments between the real estate agents. And so this series is going to focus on fun stories, not so fun stories, and all those little things that you don't always get to hear about. And it's far from reality TV. It's the real part of real estate. So sit back, relax. Let's talk about some real estate. And thanks for stopping by. Well, hey, everybody. Jeff Lavelle here, broker of The Brokerage, a real estate firm coming to you from my office here in fabulous Henderson, Nevada. Um, If you're not familiar with Henderson, we are a suburb really of the Las Vegas Valley. I'm sure you've heard of Las Vegas. We have been in the news before, and there are many amazing movies about this fair city. So uh, welcome to Agent to Agent Remarks. I look forward to talking to you today on episode, I don't know, but we're going to talk today about the purchase contract and some of the contingencies and things that exist in a purchase contract. What is a contingency, right? So we're going to go into some of that fun stuff. Uh, But before I get started, the last episode was all about ethics, right? So the code of ethics and what it is to be ethical in real estate as it is defined by the National Association of Realtors. And I've got this thing that comes out periodically that is absolutely, it's like its like the rag, right? Um, oh gosh, <laughs> phrasing, where's Archer? It's like the, uh, the gossip column, I guess you could say, although it's not gossip, right? So it's, uh, it's interesting to read and a little nauseating at times because you get to see what goes on in the industry, um, which can be a little disconcerting, a little uh, unfortunate, but... Uh, I want to share some stuff with you because, oh my goodness, it's it's a lot. So this is a publication put out by the Nevada Real Estate Division. And, and so if you've heard previous podcast episodes, uh, Nevada has a real estate division, as do most states, that issue the license because, again, all realtors are licensed real estate agents, but not all licensed real estate agents are realtors. And so this, uh, in Nevada, the Nevada Real Estate Division is... Uh, It's an enforcement body that is there to protect the public. There's oftentimes some confusion that they are there to help realtors or real estate licensees and stuff. Um, That's that's not the case by their mandate. They are willing to give advice in some ways of, of some best practices and stuff. They can't give legal advice, but they do give some uh, helpful suggestions sometimes, especially if you're looking to do the right thing. Um, you know, I know I call all the time to make sure that we're doing the things in a, in a manner that's consistent with what the real estate division expects us to, because at the end of the day, if the body that is, or the entity that's going to enforce your license um, is, uh, generally okay with what you're doing or they think that what you're doing sounds about right, you'll probably be better off than if you just kind of wing it. So Nevada Real Estate Division is, it's enforced by the Nevada Attorney General's office. So when you hear a case that is brought before the Real Estate Commission, it's an administrative commission that deals with administrative uh, actions. So if you violate Nevada Administrative Code relative to your license, Um, or Nevada revised statute uh, relative to your license. And and really they look over NRS 645. So if you're not familiar with NRS 645 and you are in real estate, it's time to crack open a book. But um, the 
AG's office, Nevada AG's office, actually is in charge of prosecuting those cases before the Real Estate Commission. And the Real Estate Commission is five commissioners that are appointed by the Nevada governor. Um, they serve, I believe, three-year terms, and uh, they I believe are capped at two years, especially in the um, like the Clark County area because we do have a lot of people here that there's usually enough to choose from. <laughs> that are willing to participate in said commission. And then uh, in the rural areas, sometimes there's some uh, additional uh, uh, terms allowed because of the uh, the scarcity of residents there or practitioners there. And that real estate commission is in charge of hearing cases that have not settled with the Nevada Real Estate Division investigators and the AG's office or have been brought to a hearing because the allegations and the, the statement of fact or the factual allegations against that person um, are so grievous that they deserve to be heard in the hearing, if that makes sense. So um, in each of these quarterly hearings, which are coming up this month, um, and I do attend those either in person or um, electronically, when those cases are heard, there is a decision and then that decision is finally published and it's published in a public document called the real estate division open house and so you get to you know everybody gets this thing it comes out and it's published to the public and we get an email copy of it and of course everybody scrolls right down to the last few pages which is the disciplinary disciplinary actions and stipulations so the disciplinary actions are what were um found in most cases by the commission and then the stipulations are what was agreed to most of the time my understanding is without hearing so um let's let's dive in here this is an agent uh salesperson with a property management permit that was um alleged and and found uh, uh sustained to have violated statute 645.663 i'm sorry 633 uh, paragraph 1, subsection I, by engaging in deceitful, fraudulent, or dishonest dealings. So again, we talked about the duties owed a couple episodes ago and how the duties owed, very first line, duties to all parties. You can't operate in a manner that is deceitful, fraudulent, or dishonest. So that's what this allegation supports, that this person did violate that by failing to notify her father's property management clients and the division of his passing and by continuing to run his business under his license after his death while not holding the required license to do so herself. Um, yeah, that's a first. I've not seen that before. Um, when somebody passes away who carries a license, the division is notified of that passing and that way they can make the necessary of efforts to help you know they want to make sure that there's continuity of the uh the responsibilities in, in terms of who needs to look after the files and who has authority to do so and so that's uh, that's really unfortunate you know obviously condolences for the loss uh, we just have to make sure that things get done correctly um, so uh, this this goes on to talk about negligence and competence uh, failing to up, uh, to do her utmost to protect the public against fraud, misrepresentation, unethical practices. It's um, it, it also appears that uh, documents were submitted to the division with um, uh, signatures of the deceased person. 
So it's it's pretty, you know, not to use the word lightly, but pretty egregious behavior. Um, and this is the sort of stuff that the real estate division is here to prevent. And, you know, there could have been, presumably there could have been an opportunity to um, step into those shoes or perhaps a intermediary, uh, or, or I'm sorry, transitional broker, property manager uh, assigned while uh, the deceased's daughter was obtaining the necessary licensing. Um, so there's a lot that went into this. Um, the, the part that will probably shock you is the fine uh, for this uh, behavior was $375,000 uh, in addition to $4,000 in division costs and fees. The licenses and permits were revoked. Um, so I like to tell people that there is nothing that will do uh, or nothing I will do to knowingly put my license in jeopardy. Knowingly is obviously the key word there. <laughs> uh, never voluntarily will I put my license in jeopardy. And because, um, you know, it's served me well over the last 18 years. It has uh, provided me a, a life that I never imagined. And um, my family and, and my colleagues and, and my, chil uh, my, my, my children, whew, my staff, um, they have all benefited from uh, my license because I'm here to run this office. So um, the other, I want to kind of go into this one. This is, this is something that might, many of you might find interesting that this person, I won't name the name, but this is from 2020. David, we'll call him. David is to is alleged to have um, violated NRS 645.230, paragraph 1, subsection A, for acting in the capacity of a real estate broker in the state of Nevada without first obtaining a broker's license from the real estate division. So this person is unlicensed, right? They don't carry a license, but yet they still fall under the purview and jurisdiction of the Nevada real estate division. The fine for acting in this way was a $4,000 fine plus another $1,200 in division fees and costs. Um, and this is a, this is a, a uh, cautionary tale. The reason I'm reading these is not to, to relish or, or in any way, um, you know, especially in something that's, that's sad and tragic. You know, um, these people are, are losing their ability to earn a living in this industry, but um, they... It's a cautionary tale that you as a property manager or a real estate agent or a broker um, need to understand the, the really very strong hand that the division and the commission can wield when it comes to behavior that is contrary to the license. Um, this other agent, actually broker, property manager, um, violated NRS 645.252 paragraph 2 as he acted as an agent in a real estate transaction and failed to exercise reasonable skill and care um, with respect to all parties by failing to deposit earnest money as agreed in the purchase agreement and numerous addendums. He made material misrepresentations by promising additional sums of earnest money to extend the close of escrow and then refused to pay upon the agreed upon sums made false promises of character likely to influence or persuade to induce falsely promised uh, by, by falsely promising to deposit additional sums of earnest money um, to extend the close of escrow. So in it sounds from what I'm reading here, I don't have the statement of fact in front of me or the uh, factual allegations by the commission, uh, by the division, I'm sorry, but it, it seems to me that this person was probably in their own deal 
and misrepresented themselves in the deal. And um, that in doing so violated the statute. So it's a $30,000 earnest money dispute situation where he should have um, done what he said he was going to do. That have resulted in a $15,000 fine, one five. Uh, a subsequent case also um, resulted in a $15,000 fine, uh, it appears. And so a total of $30,000 in fines, loss of the licenses, and then all that comes after that. I mean, potentially civil matter to pay another $30,000 in failed earnest money deposits. Oh, well, that was not what we initially started this whole podcast for, but I wanted to share it with you. I hadn't really even <laughs> been able to look at it myself, so we all read that together for the first time, so my reactions there are genuine. So the, the purchase agreement, let's, let's talk a little bit about it. I'm not going to go into page uh, by page here, but a couple of things are, are these contingencies that we hear about so often, right? So um, in, in this market, again, we're in the strongest seller's market I've seen in 18 years. But in this market, we are seeing a lot of agents, a lot of clients, let's say that, a lot of clients, buyers are waiving their opportunity to have a property appraised or more specifically what i should say is not that they're waiving the opportunity for the appraisal but they are saying that no matter what the appraisal comes in at they are going to pay the agreed upon sales price so part of what a buyer's agent does you know this waiver of an appraisal kind of runs contrary to my duties again take that word fiduciary out of your vocabulary but my duties to my client because in my 18 years of doing this we've always gone out there you know hat in hand to kick the door down and do our clients bidding but in instances where the market is so grossly one-sided and where the demand is so absolutely unprecedented. Oh, I hate that word. Ever since COVID hit, I hate unprecedented. But since this is such an unprecedented market, these provisions that we have in our contract to protect our buyer and their earnest money deposit are many cases being waived. So where I'm normally used to being able to very keenly and and deftly <laughs> look at these words i've got a thesaurus in front of me where we've got this ability to do that for our clients to protect them and to uh, assure that their best interests are served they are instructing us in consultation which is what the way you know, it should be in consultation but they're instructing us that they don't want to have that provision in place and and that's you know I think the informed buyer should be fully aware, I'm sorry, should be fully allowed, right, to do what they need to do, what they feel they need to do, what they believe they need to do, what they agree to do to get the property they want. You know, real estate is unique in its value. 
there's a premise when you start in real estate schools called CITUS, S-I-T-U-S, CITUS. CITUS, 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 which translated means location, location, location. And so property over here may not be worth what property over there is worth. Property on the freeway side of the neighborhood may not be worth what the park side of the neighborhood is. Property with a strip view may not be worth what a property with a mountain view is worth. And so that's where the uniqueness of a property is really important. And so if a buyer believes that the uniqueness of that property warrants their payment of a premium, then that's their right and that's their choice. Um, I had a very interesting discussion just yesterday with a broker who I, oh, well, he's not a broker, but he's a, a gentleman in our industry who I very much respect. And his concern was this, this um, trend right now, which has been going on for quite some time, more than, more than a year, the trend of buyers paying over the appraised value. And you know the natural concern is, well, if and when buyers feel that they overpaid for a home, they're gonna say, well, my realtor told me to. Well, <laughs> I would never tell a client to overpay for a house. I would never encourage a client to do something that they weren't fully capable of doing or fully um, committed to doing themselves. You know, our job is not to tell our clients what to do. I'm, I'm very, very adamant with my agents that we are not here to tell our clients they can or cannot do anything. They're not our children. They're our clients. We do their bidding. We have fidelity to them. And so when our clients tell us, hey, I want to offer $20,000 above asking price, and I'm going to pay the difference in appraised value because I know that that's what it's going to take to get this property. Who am I to tell them no? I mean, really, the statute tells me I'm not allowed to tell them no. You know, the only time I'm allowed to refuse a client their instructions, if you will, within reason. I'm not saying like, you know, if they were a total jerk, I couldn't tell them to pound sand and I was going to fire them. You can do those sorts of things. But let's just say, you know, this is a perfectly well-adjusted client. You're having a great time. Everybody likes each other. And they say, Jeff, I want to offer $50,000 over this $500,000 asking price. Now, I'm probably going to just have a little chitty chat with them, make sure that they understand where the market is and, and just kind of, you know, do a little touch base there. But I'm not going to tell them they can't because it's not my place. They get to decide how much they're going to offer on the house. They're going to decide how much they're willing to pay above as a premium. My job is to make sure that I do my very, very best within my abilities to get them what they're asking me to get them. So appraisal contingency. You're getting a loan, you're buying a home, FHA, VA, conventional, jumbo, USDA. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have a lot of USDA loans here, but let's just say that you're going to be getting an appraisal on your for your loan. 
I don't know many lenders that don't require a loan, right? There are some conditions where you have appraisal waivers that are in that are issued by the lender. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, let's just say you're out there, you've got a 785 FICO score, you're putting 30% down, uh, the property price is really just within the you know the navigational beacons there. You're just you're doing a great thing. This is a great deal. The lender could very well come in and say, hey, we don't need an appraisal. We're comfortable with the debt to income. We're comfortable with the loan to value. We're comfortable with all of the different aspects of this offer. We really don't see a need to get a third party out there to tell us that this is a good deal. We're comfortable with this deal. The lender can issue an appraisal waiver, but a buyer can't waive the appraisal for the lender. All a buyer can do is say, hey, I know there's going to be an appraisal. You're asking $500,000. i am offering you five fifty. The appraisal comes in, let's just say for giggles, at 525. That means that the buyer has a $25,000 shortfall. $500,000, $550,000 offer price. That was what the parties contracted for. Appraisal at 525 leaves $25,000 to be made up. So your buyer has the need to pay the down payment, which is the, the statutory requirement of the lending program that they're in. So let's say they have a 5% down, $500,000 loan. That's a, well, let's just say 10% down. I can do those, those numbers too in my head. <laughs> $50,000 down payment plus the $25,000 shortfall. So now that buyer is coming in with $75,000 to purchase the home. Hey, they make $185,000 a year and they've got a bunch of money saved up. That's their call all day. You know, I have to disclose material facts. I have to disclose things that I believe are of a important nature, I guess we'll say. I forget the exact uh, verbiage from the SRP or from the duties owed. But the point of it is, who am I to tell my client no? Loan contingency. The loan contingency says that a buyer is getting financing, that the parties agree that the buyer is getting financing, and that's one of the terms of the agreement. On page one, it asks, what is the buyer's method of payment, essentially? What it really says is this agreement is contingent upon the buyer qualifying for a new loan or that the buyer will bring the balance of the purchase price to close of escrow. So if you don't have anything filled in on the new loan portion, then chances are it's a cash deal. And there's some other areas to make that very overtly known later in the contract. But if you're getting a loan, like we talked about just a minute ago, you have an appraisal contingency, but you also have a loan contingency. And the appraisal contingency typically expires before the loan contingency does. Um, maybe you have a 14-day appraisal contingency hoping that it gets done on day 10 or so. That way you can get your appraisal results back before that contingency expires and before that earnest money deposit and contingency to cancel the agreement expires. One of the things we talked about in the last episode with the um, uh, Code of Ethics is Article 11. Article 11 requires that a realtor have competency or basically that they are able to exercise the expertise of their field of practice. And in this case, extending your appraisal contingency or attempting to extend the appraisal contingency when that contingency is expiring and you don't have your appraisal back is an important part of that competency. 
So we want to talk about extending these contingencies when it's in our client's best interest and when we can get it, get it accomplished. Does a seller in a seller's market where they had nine offers on a home have to worry too much about losing a buyer? Probably not. So if they lost a buyer because the appraisal contingency wasn't extended and the buyer had to cancel within the appraisal contingency, do you think that the seller is really going to be harmed by that? No. So the contingencies are there when the parties agree to allow them. The seller doesn't have to agree to allow a contingency, but it's up to the buyer to decide if they want to proceed with a purchase agreement that doesn't contain one. The contingencies are simply there to protect the buyer. I'll tell you about an interesting experience I had. My buyers told me in the market that we're in now, okay, that they wanted this house. The house that they were going to be buying was their quote unquote dream home. And in that spirit, they needed me to make sure that the deal happened. And they're lovely people. I mean, lovely people. I adore them. What made it worse was they had a house to sell to buy the house that they were buying. And I had sold them that house that they were selling. So we've known each other for a long time and they liked me enough to have come back to me when it was time to sell their old home and buy their new one. It is such an honor to have that kind of loyalty from a client and that kind of appreciation for what you do. Sincerely, it's one of the highest flatters, uh, forms of flattery. Flatters. It's one of the highest forms of flattery. There, look, there's no editing, okay? I'm not going to go back and take out my flub. You're here for the whole thing. Um, but it's one of the best things you can hear from a client, you know. So I wrote the offer. And I had had some conversations with the other agents. And I was very careful in what I said and didn't say. And the agents asked me, are your clients putting in a home to sell contingency? And I had talked with my buyers about the fact that if they put that contingency in place, they would lose out on a very competitive home like this one. So what my sellers, my buyer said to me was, no, we do not want to protect our earnest money by putting in a home to sell contingency. Great. So when I was asked by the other agent, I accurately and honestly replied, no, my clients will not have a home to sell contingency. Now, in hindsight, the listing agent could have asked me because I would have been honest with them, does your client have the available funds to buy this home with, oh, and you know what I even said? I said they have a home to sell, but they're not making it a contingency. So I even said to the other agent, they have a house, they're selling it, but they're not making it a contingency. That was, Those were my words as, as honest and true to God as possible. And so what they could have said was, okay, Jeff, well, I understand they have a house to sell, but do they have the cash in their hand right now? to qualify for this home without selling the old one? And my answer to them would have been absolutely not. But, Mr. and Mrs. Listing Agent, I will make sure that this does not impact your sale. Now, 
They probably would have told me, thanks very much. We appreciate your interest, but we're going to go with another buyer who doesn't have to sell a home. We inevitably <laughs> had a delay on this buyer who was buying my client's home that they were selling. We had a one business day delay, which happened to go from a Friday to a Monday. And the agent called me up and said, what do you mean your client's home hasn't sold and they can't close? And I said, well, just that. And I knew what was coming. Well, I didn't know that the house was contingent. And I said, it's not. My client's earnest money is absolutely up for grabs right now. But I think that you and I could both agree that it's in everybody's best interests just to close the deal. And all we needed was an extra business day. Well, I got a call from her partner. And they may be listening to this podcast. That's fine because everything I'm saying is what happened. <laughs> and so they called, the partner called me up and he proceeded to share his feelings with me. And claimed that I had been unethical in my dealings with him. Well, I had not been. I had been specific in what I'd said to him for my client's benefit. And I answered his questions, or I should say his partner's questions, honestly. I did not, ex I did not elaborate on the questions because that's what my clients wanted. My clients instructed me to make sure that their earnest money deposit was not at issue if this deal fell apart because they understood the liquidated damages provision of the contract, having reviewed it with me thoroughly, and they did not want to lose this home over having a contingency in place that the seller would otherwise not be okay with. It's no different than saying you were waiving the appraisal by waiving the home to sell contingency. Now, if those agents ever see my offer come across their table again, they'll probably be a little less excited to see my name. But, you know, hey, I did what was right with my client, at my client's instruction, the way that I was supposed to. So you have your appraisal contingencies, you have your loan contingencies, you have your inspections. And I want to go over the inspection because realistically, uh, it's one of the bigger components to buying a home. And in order to make sure that the property meets the different uh, uh, needs of the, of the client, of the client's uh, specific expectations for that property, um, we want to make sure that the home meets those needs uh, now and in the future. So let's just read here uh, our purchase contract, the, uh, the let's see, version uh, September of 2021. This is the version that we have right now. And it has this really, I think, fairly well laid out section that says that uh, yada, 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 whether there are unsatisfactory conditions. This is, let me, let me undo the yada, yada, yada here. Let me read this little part to you. It's up to the buyer to decide whether the property is insurable to the buyer's satisfactions whether there are unsatisfactory conditions surrounding or otherwise affecting the property. Now here's the such as. Such as location of flood zones, airport noise, noxious fumes or odors, environmental hazards or substances, whether the property is zoned properly, locality to freeways, roadways, places of worship, schools, golf courses, etc. So, you know, why is this important? Well, 
Nevada has some, Clark County specifically, has some very large and potentially damaging and expensive flood zones. You have to carry flood insurance if you live in a flood zone. Flood insurance can be extremely expensive. Locality to freeways. We have three very large, very busy freeways here. The 215 Beltway, the 95, and the 15. We have noxious fumes and odors. It is gone now, but we had a pig farm in North Las Vegas for many, many years. The pig farm predated most of the homes in the valley. They used to get all of the refuse from the buffets at the different hotels. If you watch Dirty Jobs, there's an episode of this. It's fascinating. Um, so I encourage you to pop open the YouTube there. Uh, the YouTube. Listen to me. Yeah, how are the kids doing today on the YouTube? Pop open YouTube. Check out Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe and listen to or watch, I should say, uh, the episode on the Las Vegas pig farm. Um, so that is a horrendous smell. If you've, I've got a, another story for a different day on that. Um, horrendous smell for noxious fumes and odors. Environmental ha substances or hazards. You could have um, uh, a, a property with underground storage tanks. You could have a property with other hazards that need to be dealt with. Whether the property is zoned properly. What if they're trying to run a group home in a residential neighborhood? Do they have the zoning for it? Locality to freeways. Railroads. I missed airport noise. We have some big airports here. We have McCarran International. We have Henderson Executive. We have North Las Vegas. We have several helipads. Um, Boulder City Airport. Creech. Nellis Air Force Base. So if you want to talk about airport noise, this city has its fair share. Um, railroads. We have Union Pacific Rail Lines that run and crisscross through the valley here. Um, and uh, they can be... Uh, a nuisance. Not only the traffic of the train itself, but when the train offloads cars, if you live in the Henderson area, there's a place called Berry Plastics. Berry Plastics uses a vacuum offloading system to offload plastic beads from large tankers that are stationed outside their factory. So there is a noise of these plastic beads being offloaded all the time. No harm to Berry Plastics. I mean, they're doing their job. They were there, again, well before many of the homes in the area. But be aware of these things. Places of worship. This is something that was brought up to me when I was in real estate school. You know, what if a client says to you, Jeff, you know, we need to be near, um, we need to be in a, uh, a neighborhood that is a Jewish neighborhood. Well, I don't know of any such thing, but they are, let's say they're Orthodox Jews and they've told you that they want to be a certain distance from a temple that has the services that they need uh, to, to attend. This is for them to tell you where they want to be, how far is too far, what neighborhoods they want to be in based on where they want to attend services. Now, that is a very important part of their due diligence period. And it's extremely important that you as a licensed real estate agent that abides by fair housing principles and guidelines, allow them to make the decisions and that you don't steer or guide them in a direction that you believe is right for them. This is extremely important as part of your due diligence, but also as your uh, fair housing requirements dictate. Schools. Kids go to schools, don't they? Some are homeschooled, but some kids need to go to schools that have specific programs for them. Maybe they have a special need. You have children that are going to um, uh, a magnet school. Magnet schools aren't as big a deal when it comes to zoning because those schools typically have children that bus in from different parts of town. But 
is that a reasonable distance for that child to travel? You know, there's a lot of different things that need to go in. It's golf courses. It's one of the other things, golf courses. Um, yes, great. You want to golf all the time. You want to be close to the golf course. That's fantastic. Um, hospitals is another thing, which is interesting to me that it isn't in here. I do have some older clients that are always concerned about being close to a hospital or close to their doctor's offices, etc., because they do spend a lot of time to and from, and they don't want to have a 45-minute drive from Las Vegas to North Las Vegas to go to the VA hospital. So these are things to be considerate of and to listen for and ask questions. Don't guide your client in these situations. If your client mentions to you that they go to the VA hospital a lot, you're not going to say to them, well, you need to live in North Las Vegas because that's where the VA hospital, the biggest VA hospital is. You're going to ask them how far from the hospital is too far for you and let them guide you. But this is part of that contingency that they have to fulfill. And it's important, in my opinion, that you are the source of this information. Uh, I'm sorry, the source of the source, not the source itself. So you need to be providing them with objective information or ways to get that objective information from a third party source that you are not responsible for. Preliminary title report is another really big thing here. Bigger, I think, than most agents realize. And I don't think most agents realize the purchase contract that we use with the Las Vegas Realtors has a provision in Section 8C that the preliminary title report will be provided to the buyer within 10 business days and that they have uh, five business. Uh, I'm sorry, they have five business days. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to remember the five business. They have five business days to object to any items in that uh, preliminary title report, which would show clouds on title, liens, judgments, encumbrances, etc. And the seller has five days to cure any objections uh, that the buyer may bring up on that report. Trash liens, tax liens, IRS liens. And then we get into uh, the common interest community. This is another really, really big contingency that Nevada uh, has statute 116.4109. 116 is uh, common interest communities, HOAs, but 0.4109 goes into specifics on the HOA resale package. Your buyer has five calendar days from the day after receipt of the HOA resale package as outlined by statute to accept or decline the HOA resale package. And if they don't give that objection in writing as outlined by the purchase contract, they are deemed to have accepted it. And if you accept the HOA rules but don't follow them, you can be fined quite severely in some cases. So it's important to make sure that, that contingency is covered. Lastly, I would say the, the last real contingency in here that I'm I'm you know wanting people to be mindful of is the walkthrough. You know, you have a certain period as outlined by the contract, determining on what you decided to be uh, filled in on the blank. I usually say about three days, but three days prior to close of escrow, you're going to go through there and you're going to walk that property one last time. And the point of this is not to do an additional inspection or uh, have your home inspector come out and run the property through its paces again. It's to make sure that the property is substantially in the same condition as it was when you made your offer and you had your inspection done and then nothing has really changed. Now, if your buyer chooses to be absent for the walkthrough, as, a, as our office policy is that you don't perform the walkthrough for them. Have them hire the home inspector to go back out there for a trip charge, usually runs about $100, and check 
that the property is still functioning properly, that the AC turns on in the summer and the heat turns on in the winter, uh, that the lights are still active. You know, you're doing a general walkthrough, but you don't want to do that walkthrough for them uh, because it specifically says here, if the buyer elects not to conduct a walkthrough inspection prior to closing, then all systems, items, and aspects of the property are deemed satisfactory. And the buyer releases the seller's liability for costs of any repair that would reasonably been identified by a walkthrough inspection, except as otherwise provided by law. That's a big part of what that walkthrough is about. It's to make sure that your client objects prior to taking possession, taking title ownership of that property. So I hope this has been helpful. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're a, a property manager, a real estate agent, a broker, maybe you're a buyer looking to buy a home, but I hope you uh, have found some additional knowledge that maybe you didn't already know uh, in this podcast. That's my, my goal with this series is to really kind of bring my 18 years of experience to bear where I can. And of course, I, I say this in most of the podcasts, but my information does not uh, satisfy that of any legal advice. I'm not providing legal advice or tax advice. I'm certainly not here to contradict your broker if you're a licensee. And keep in mind that this information is specific to Nevada in many cases, so it may not apply in your state. But the principle here is to make sure that your buyer is protected. It's a weird time, at least the time that we're here in Las Vegas, the time this podcast is being recorded. And I hope for a more normal market soon so that we can get back to the um, give and take that exists in most contracts. I hope it finds you well. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. I hope that you'll share it. I, I always say like and subscribe. I don't know if that's a thing, but I'll continue to say it because I'd like you to listen to these episodes as they come out. More importantly, share them with the people that you like. Share them with the people you don't like, especially if you don't like the podcast yourself. Uh, and if you ever have questions, you can always email me, jeff at thebrokeragevegas.com. That's jeff with a G, G-E-O-F-F -F, at thebrokeragevegas.com. I'm always happy to hear what you have to say. And uh, until next time, this is Jeff Lavelle, broker of the Brokerage Real Estate Firm and my cool little podcast, Agent to Agent Remarks. Until next time, talk to you then.